I would say there was a time just a few years ago that everybody knew one of the verses that was contained in the teaching today. So much so that you could go or watch on television certain ball games and you would see 316 or John 316 and that was their attempt to to be witnesses or whatever to the, to Jesus. Um, I am uh, a little more pessimistic now about whether people, if you were to say John 3.16, whether they knew what you would be talking about or not. And there were a number of denominations that classified themselves as Christians, and I won't say they are or they aren't, but they would kind of relegate and they say, well, if you believe that you must be born again, then you must be one of those evangelistic Christians. And we're going to see that, no, that's kind of what everybody is supposed to be as a Christian. But as I go through this first part of this, this, this message, and we're going to be in John for the early part of Jesus' ministry, continue because John kind of picked up the early part. And then I would say a good quarter or more of, of the gospel of John is just one night, the Passover and all the teaching. Uh, but 90% of what's in the, the gospel of John isn't found in the other, um, what we call synoptic gospels. So uh, it's, it's unique. And, and John is going to, to take a look at a conversation, a dialogue between Jesus and another man. And then next week, we're going to see a dialogue between Jesus and a woman. Uh, and John is going to pick up these um, dialogues as essential to understanding just who Jesus is. And in my message, I am sure, as I say, that I'm going to say at least one thing, maybe more, but I'm going to say at least one thing that's probably contrary to what you've heard. So um, I'm just saying that right out the box. Um, don't tackle me when I'm done. If you want to discuss it, I'd be happy to do that, but uh, be happy to, to tell, tell you why you're wrong. So. So in John chapter 3, we're going to start. And it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. I'm going to stop there. So it tells us a whole lot in this one kind of short sentence. One, it says that his name Nicodemus, that he's a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a group a sect, if you will, of the Jews who believed in hyper-technical law. They made sure that you followed the law because that was the way to present righteousness. You were righteous because you followed the law. But they were so hyper-legalistic, if you will, that they made rules so that you couldn't violate the rules so that you couldn't violate the rules. So, for instance... Uh, they would add things like when the scripture says we're not, we're to rest on the Sabbath, they determined how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, and that was what's called the Sabbath day's journey. And if you walked one more step than that, then you broke the Sabbath, even though there's nothing in the law that says how far you can or can't walk, just says you're supposed to rest. So much so that even in, and, and I have this, not that I've been there, but a, a good friend of mine who spent a month in Israel uh, said that on the Sabbath, even to this day, if you're in a multi-story building, be prepared to take a while to get up and down because all of the buttons are pushed because that's work to push a button. And so the Pharisees were those who saw that you got close to God by following the law and not only the law, but the hyper-technical rules and regulations that were upon and expanded that. They also believe in the resurrection. They believe that this wasn't all that there is to life. Now, there was another 
sect called the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. They were a little more Greek-oriented, uh, but they were also uh, a part of, of Judaism. The Sadducees only looked at the Torah as binding, and the Pharisees looked at the Torah, the prophets, and the historical books, and the poetry. So they saw the whole scripture. It also says that Nicodemus was a leader, which meant he was a part of what's called the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 to 71 men who were in essence kind of like the super supreme court, that if you violated the law, if there was some doctrinal doctrinal issue, this group of men would come together and decide it. And that's who Jesus eventually was tried before the Sanhedrin, uh, and they didn't have the authority to put him to death, so they had to seek Pilate for that permission. And so not only was this person a Pharisee, he excelled. He became a member of this Sanhedrin, this ruling class. So he comes to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as the teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, John hasn't told us as far as in Jerusalem a lot of signs and things that he did. As a matter of fact, the only um, miracle that Jesus performed thus far as far as recorded in the Gospel of John, was the changing water into wine and good wine in Canaan. So other than cleaning out the temple that we see in John, Jesus was performing signs and wonders and miracles. But John just hasn't got around to telling us that because, again, John's purpose in writing the gospel is for us to believe. He doesn't record every single thing that Jesus does or said. But by implication, because Nicodemus says, we've seen what you've done, and it's more than just cleaning the temple. We know that you must come from God because no one can do what you do unless he is from God. I kind of see this as an initial flattery. But the flattery is wrong because he didn't just come from God. He is God. So while it may seem to be flattering, and he does call him rabbi because he's coming to discuss teachings. But notice this. He, doesn't, he just starts off by saying, we know that you come from God. And before he can ask this question or debate what it is that he wants to discuss with Jesus, Jesus interjects this. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, and remember when you hear that, what he's about to say is on the test. It's important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this, before we even, this has got to be like mind-blowing to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus' whole life has been to be righteous by following the law. And if he can't even see the kingdom of God, if he can't even get to heaven with, without being born, well, wait a minute, what is what I'm doing? It's ineffective, in essence, what Jesus is saying. So then Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I love this. And this is where I'm a little eccentric. You don't have to wait to be old before it's impossible to be born again. Fifteen minutes after you're born, your mom doesn't want you to be born again. She doesn't want you going back where you came from. It's just, it's not a matter of just size. It's a matter of degree. And so he makes the point and say, well, wait a minute, if you're old, and that's probably what is, I can't go back. But even if you're 15 minutes old, you're probably not going to be born again. But he is saying, it seems impossible. And when it comes to flesh and blood, he's exactly right. But he misses what Jesus is saying. So Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, when it comes to this, you must be born of water and spirit. There are about three views of what Jesus means by water. I'll tell you the three views, and I'll tell you the first two are wrong. The first view is people say, well, water means that it's like baptism, that you have to be baptized, you have to repent, and that's what he's talking about, the water and the Spirit. That's flat wrong because the Scriptures never teach that baptism is a sacrament. It teaches that it's a fulfilling of the law of righteousness, but it does not impart righteousness. For grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. All of te Scripture teaches that you are a believer, not by what you do, but by what he has done. So no action you can take can cause you to be born again. So anybody who says, well, it's talking about baptism, eh, wrong. Second, which comes kind of, and, it, and, it's, and it's real tempting, and that is, well, when you're born the first time, there's a whole lot of ambiotic fluid that kind of gushes out. As we say, her water broke. So they're saying in order to be born again, you got to be born alive, and then you got to be born spiritually. Ant wrong. Why is it that I'm so confident that that's wrong? Because I believe that Scripture, when in doubt, interprets Scripture. And if you read ahead just a little bit, like in John chapter 4, Jesus is going to talk about water. If you read a little further ahead in chapter 7, he's going to even identify what water is. And he's saying, unless you are born with water, unless water, living water springs up within you and the Spirit of God blows upon you, you're not born again. That it's a matter of not just the Spirit blowing, but coming in and filling all that you are. So Jesus, and if, if you don't believe me, fall, check out chapter 4 and check out chapter 7, that Jesus is interpreting the water here as the Spirit of God. So Jesus is saying, not that you must have physical birth and then spiritual birth, but he's saying you must have spiritual birth to be born again. So he says, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Which says two things. God does things the way God wants to do things, not the way we anticipate it. Your salvation, I'm sure, surprised somebody. And there are people who got saved that I'm sure surprised you. Because God goes where God goes, and God affects what God wants to affect, and he doesn't depend on you and me to decide, oh, it's okay. Which means it gives us great freedom to be witnesses of him. It is the Spirit. The Spirit moves as the Spirit moves. And just as we don't quite understand, yeah, we know a little better about high and low pressures and those types of things. But the wind blows and it has this effect. And it's kind of a word play because the same word for wind is the same word for Spirit. God breathed is God's Spirit. So Nicodemus, in verse 9, says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? In essence, wait a minute. All my life I've been taught and all my life I have lived that it's about the law. And now you're saying it's all about the Spirit. And Jesus answered and said to him, 
Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You see, God has been teaching us that we can't fulfill the law. That's the whole point of the The whole point of the law was to say we are helpless. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will I tell you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you about something because I learned it in a book. I'm not talking to you about something that I think as a matter of philosophy and theology. I am telling you things that I have seen because I've been in heaven. I speak, if I speak of earthly things like the wind blowing and the spirit moving, you can't understand that. Wait till you get the graduate level of heavenly things. If you can't understand these things, how do I tell you more? And these things, I don't tell you as a matter of, well, maybe kind of if, but because I've been there. Then he goes to a narrative in the book of Moses to show exactly why he was there. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus says, remember Moses. And remember when the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, and they were griping and complaining because they were tired of the water and the manna they were getting. And they were just griping and complaining. And so God sent a bunch of servants to bite them. And not only were they dying, they were dying painfully because they were fiery serpents. And so what Moses was told to do is make a bronze brass snake, stick it on a pole, and lift it up, and the people who saw that would be healed, but the people who refused to look at it would die. We wander in our life's journey. And we've been bitten, but instead of being bitten by fiery snakes and serpents, we've been bitten by what's called sin. And we're going to die unless, Jesus says, just as the children of Israel looked upon the serpent and were healed, that act of faith, the act of seeing the Son of God on the cross and believing why he was there will change his death to our eternal life. And notice that he doesn't say, and whoever believes will in him have new life in the sense of, well, one of these days after you die, you're going to be living again. Jesus says that you will have eternal life. So that when we, our body ceases to function and is at rest, we are present with him, continuing to live. And then when he returns, we will be reunited with a new body, which the old body was used as a seed, and reunited in life eternal forever and ever. Simply because not of what we do, but what we believe about what he did. And then now the famous verse. For God. Starts off about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. For God so loved the world. He didn't just love the Jew, which is again going to come as a surprise to Nicodemus. Because they were God's people, and they were the ones who were going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus says, God loves the Jew. He loves the Gentile. He loves the world. 
because he created all of us. And all of us have his image upon us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God doesn't love by just saying, I love you. Well, that's nice. God's love is shown in action. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. No restrictions. Doesn't matter what ethnic background you come from, what parental background you come from, whether you were in church, not in church, whatever. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this is where I'm going to say some things that you probably not heard before. Actually, the opposite. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I am sure you've heard an evangelist and other people say that you're going to hell because you reject Jesus. You don't go to hell because you reject Jesus. You go to hell because you didn't believe in him. It's not a matter of rejection. It's a matter of belief. Let me just say this to show that it's consistent. If it, because the scripture just said, you're already judged, you're already condemned. It's only when you believe that you're no longer judged or no longer condemned. So the natural state of mankind is judgment and con condemnation. If it were as evangelists say that, that the sin is rejecting Jesus, then the worst thing we could do for the world is to send missionaries to places in the world that never heard of Jesus. Because then you've given them the name of Jesus, which then they would then reject, which means that they would go to hell. And that's not what the scriptures teach at all. The, teach, the scriptures teach you are judged unless you come to belief, which means that we should have more missionaries, not fewer. That we should be out there in the world understanding, which means because we're so afraid, well, I might say the wrong thing. What can you say to a condemned person that's the wrong thing if they're condemned already? And it's not about you. For God so loved the world. And the spirit blows where it wishes. And the water comes within. It's not about you. It's for God. He just simply asked you to be his witness. Not his converter. So those who do not believe are already judged and condemned. And those who believe have been forgiven and justified and made righteous. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus is saying there's a response and there's a reason for the response. People who refuse to come to Jesus, the light of the world, do so because they're totally content doing what it is that they're doing and they don't want the, the light to be exposed and say that's wrong. How dare you judge me? I don't need to judge you. You've already been judged. Not my job. But they refuse to come because they're perfectly content with what they're doing. You are never going to get somebody to change what they're doing until they determine it's not working for them.
a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, when they hit rock bottom, they'll change. And I've seen a lot of people where I would consider it rock bottom, but they don't because they don't change because apparently they're content with what it is that they're doing. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as being wrought in God. One group wants to hide what they're doing. The other group wants to, to be made plain and clear what they're doing, and they're doing it not for themselves, but for God. How is it that you can tell whether you're born again? Does the Spirit dwell in you? How is it that you can tell whether you're born again? What's your motivation? Is your motivation to do your thing the way you want to do it? Or is your motivation to do God's thing the way God wants it? Or at least to struggle with doing God's thing the way God wants to do it? Because Lord knows we're not perfect. That's why we're supposed to pick up our cross and follow him and to die daily. Because we naturally want to do what we want to do. It's the struggle to say, no, I want to do what it is God wants me to do. And Lord, just kill me that I might do what you want me to do as you want me to do, that you might be glorified. So, here's this man who comes to Jesus at night, I think probably looking to have a theological discussion about the law only to find Jesus turning the conversation totally away from what he probably was there for. To say to him, your righteousness does not come from what you do, but by whose you are. And that God did these things because he loves you. There are a lot of people who say, you know, God so loved me that he would have died for me. I don't know. Because the scripture says, for God so loved the world. And so maybe if I were the only person lost, I, I do know it talks about that he goes after the one because the 99 are okay. So yeah. But even if God so loved the world and not just me, I'll take it. Because he loves the world enough that his spirit came upon me. That I might be born again. And I am so grateful that I do not have to live a perfect life by my own means, but that his spirit dwells in me, seeking to do the will of God, seeking to glorify God. Because God does all things well. I just do a couple. So if you're a believer... You're a believer not because of what you have done, but what he has done. To use the example of natural birth versus spiritual birth. What part did you play in your conception? Nothing. What part did you play in your birth? You got pushed out. Your mom pretty much did most of the work. Similarly, in spiritual matters, God our Father caused the Spirit to be born within us, 
to rise up within us, to make us and fashion us fully formed by his well of living water springing up within us and his spirit blowing upon us to be fashioned into a person of God. So just as Nicodemus probably as a leader thought, well, you know, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty good because I'm not only a Pharisee, I'm a, I'm a leading member of, of that sect and a ruler. And Jesus says, that doesn't impress God at all. But God, being rich in mercy, chose to love people like you and me and to say, he or she is my child because I birthed them. I love them and I keep them because for God so loved the world. He loved us and gave his son for us. Our praise and our adoration ought not to be how wonderful I am, but how awesome and loving is our God. And all God's people said,
I can live.